All right, Leviticus chapter 10. So I've got my sermon here, and I'm going to read it, preach it. I'm going to preach, read it. I don't know how to do this. I've only done it once, so I'm not good at it. But I have some things I want to communicate very accurately and precisely. We began teaching two weeks ago on restoring honor to the kingdom of God. And the more I study this, the more I preach it, the more I perceive the frustration, the anger, the, the zeal of God about how maybe we would say the American church has grown to disrespect that which is holy and sacred. If we are a part of a kingdom, and we said that last week, we taught extensively on what kingdoms were. If we are part of God's kingdom, it's a heavenly kingdom. We should know something about kingdoms. We covered this last week, so here's your review. Kingdoms are not democracies. You don't get a say. That and the fact that there's not a single congregation that votes in the entire Bible teaches us that congregational church governments are unbiblical. They result in nothing but problems and perversion running the show. Number two, kingdoms have kings over them. That's why they're called a kingdom. Number three, Kingdoms have established borders over which they rule. This is called the dominion. That is why it's called a king's domain, the kingdom. It speaks of the king's domain. Number four, kingdoms have unique culture. We call it kingdom culture. It doesn't care about America. It doesn't care about Africa. It doesn't care about European culture, I mean. Loves the people, doesn't care about the culture. Anytime the kingdom culture cross plows our personal culture, we divorce personal culture and we go with the high road. The kingdom is always higher than how mama taught you, except if mama taught you the kingdom. Number five, kingdoms have an economy. We call it giving and receiving, not just giving, but also receiving. Communicating is the King James word, communicating as concerning giving and receiving. This kingdom has an economy. We want to be out of the world system of mammon. We want to be in the God's kingdom of economy. Kingdoms have ruling authority. We have the authority of the name of Jesus. If there's no authority, it's no kingdom. <laughs> Down in Key West, Florida, they fancy themselves the Conch Republic. Key West, Florida is a little island seven miles long by about two miles wide full of debauchery and weirdness. And they fancy themselves the Conch Republic. But they have no authority, therefore they are no kingdom. I actually have their flag in my office because it's the first place I really did some missionary work in. So I esteem it as one of my little micro-nations. But it's two miles by seven miles, and a chunk of that's their local landfill. So if that doesn't tell you anything about it. <laughs> Number seven, the ruling authority is manifested through laws. Every kingdom has laws. We, in this kingdom of God, we have the Bible that gives us our laws. We're not a lawless kingdom. When you think of lawless kingdoms, you should think of Mardi Gras. The church is to be nothing like Mardi Gras or Fantasy Fest. That's a Key West thing. Or Vegas. That's lawlessness. Number eight, the laws are taught in every kingdom. Laws are taught and upheld by officers. We call those ministers in this kingdom. Number nine, the officers are assigned to official offices. We call that the local church or the local ministry house. Number 10, kingdoms have subjects. That's called the body of Christ. And number 11, kingdoms have enemies. That's Satan and those he fathers. He fathers some Christians. He didn't produce them, but he fathers them. Just because you have a biological dad doesn't mean that person ever became your father. You could be adopted and your adoptive dad be your real father because he fathered you. Satan fathers a lot of Christians, if you didn't know. 
and they become the enemy of the cross. And Paul went on to say in Galatians, I would they were excommunicated. I would they were amputated off the body. So the king and his kingdom, whether it be a European kingdom that we might be familiar with or the kingdom of God, the king and his kingdom are inseparable. The king exists because he has a kingdom. The kingdom exists because there is a king. These two are inseparable. You cannot dishonor the kingdom without dishonoring the king. And some external violations of the king's the kingdom's autonomy can be so egregious it is justified and judged a act of war. There's micro dishonors and petty dishonors and, and just making fun of little kingdoms. And then you can so violate a kingdom, the king says, that's war. The kingdom of God has always had external opponents. But for the last few decades, the king's subjects have been taught by many of the king's officers to disregard the king's laws and the king's culture. It would appear that many of the king's trusted officers want to change the kingdom from within. And when an external opponent could never prevail against this kingdom, internal treason is seeking to do such a thing. How many laws, doctrines, and rights can be changed within a kingdom before it no longer resembles the original kingdom? Take our nation, for example. How many things can we undo in America and it's no longer the America we remember? This is not an America first sermon, but just take that in context. You and I have an image of what France is like. There's certain things we expect France to be like. How many of those things are removed until we go to France and we say, there's nothing like I was expecting? Or Africa. The first time I went to Africa, I went to Durban. And I went to the biggest, most beautiful mall I've ever seen in my whole life. And this did not fit what I thought Africa should be like. And I ministered among Indians, dancing around in beautiful saris, speaking in tongues. And that's not Africa to this Nat Geo-trained mind. And then we had a great time, but none of it fit what I expected. It was not Africa. We hopped on a plane and flew to Botswana and looked out the window. And then there was scrub brushes and acacia trees and jackals. And I said, now that's Africa what I remember from Nat Geo. How many things can you change in a kingdom till it's no longer a kingdom? And what we're experiencing right now is, is within the church, the church's officers are leading a silent coup, undermining what makes the kingdom of God the kingdom of God. It's reflected in our nation and the nations of the world simultaneously because it's the end of all things. And the revelation says these things must be so but not in our church, not in righteous churches, because a remnant shall be saved, not the bulk, not the bulk. A remnant shall be saved. How many core Christian doctrines can a believer denounce before they be judged apostate? Leviticus chapter 10, you're there? Verse 10. This is Moses speaking to the priests. He says, you put difference between holy and unholy, and between unclean and clean, and that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord hath spoken unto them by the hand of Moses. The job of the preachers is to teach you, the people, what is holy and what is unholy, what is clean and unclean. And then once you get it, you go and live it. And that propagates the kingdom. But what we're experiencing are mega churches, influential voices now that are slowly undermining 
the church. The church does not successfully, or, or, or the church doesn't fold under onslaught, face forward attacks because we stand as a buttress against it. And we say, no, but what we are done, uh, we, we are subjected to attack from within and little by little. As I prepared this, I thought of this game I played as a child that we bought for my kids. And I call it, I should say Milton Bradley calls it Kerplunk. Anybody remember Kerplunk? For you Zoomers, you cannot hashtag this or swipe right on it. All you can do is touch it because it's real. And you play it with what are called real friends. That you can touch and hug and then go get a popsicle with afterwards. And there's no filters for this. You can't change your hair pink or put a septum nose in, stud in. This just is what it is. So if you know the game Kerplunk, and I wrote profane at the top, and I wrote holy, you take turns. We play this in my house. The kids love it when mommy loses. You take turns pulling out these um, straws, and these straws are all that separates you from winning and you from losing. And the more these straws you pull out, you start to increase the risk of kerplunking, marbles. And, of course, you turn this thing so that you're, uh-oh, Number one, two, three, or four. If these represent the doctrines of the church and they are built and given to withhold darkness and that which is profane and to keep profanity out of that which is holy, then what right does any TBN preacher, any skinny jean nipple preacher, any tattooed, pierced up freak show preacher have to start undermining the doctrines of Christ? No Southern Baptist hack no Bab, uh, Methodist apostate with a rainbow collar. No Catholic priest. No word of faith grace heretic. We have no permission to undermine the gospel of Jesus Christ. One service, one doctrine, one conference, one book at a time. Because we're experiencing filth pour into the church, and it's the pulpit's fault. That and the Christians that are too stupid, lazy, or moronic to study their own Bible to know that my preacher has just gone apostate and to flee him. Part of judgment is you flee people. And the religious excuse is, well, we've been to this church forever. My daddy started this church. He built this church. We have a name on a pew on a stained glass window. Then go to hell with all of it. We don't have permission to mix profane and unpro un un unholy. We don't have permission to mix clean and unclean. We make a distinction between that which God endorses and that which he doesn't endorse. We're called to make that distinction. And the laws and statutes of God aid us in all this assignment. And this is how dishonor is creeping into the kingdom. And remember, one of our theme verses is 1 Samuel, where God said, those that honor me, I will honor. And those that despise me, I will despise. And if you hadn't noticed, God's doing a lot of despising right now because people despise him but want his blessing. They've taken it upon themselves to be smarter than God. And this sermon this morning is about getting honor back in the house for the house of God. Because if you live in this nation, you know some of our local churches are disgusting carnal cesspools. But it didn't happen with one straw, little by little. A friend of mine is a Pentecostal architect. So he has insight into the things of God. The Pentecostal part means nothing except that he's a Christian and he fears God. He built a course 
to teach his local university class called Form Follows Worship. And he studied a Jewish synagogue, an Eastern Orthodox church, and a Roman Catholic church. He visited a mosque, a Hindu temple, and a Sikh temple. And he wanted to teach architectural students what these religions taught should they ever in their career be called upon to help design and work with priests or rabbis or imams to design a house of worship. So even though he's a Pentecostal tongue talker who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ as the only way to the Father, he's raising up future architects, and this is a job you might have to design another house of worship. So he wanted to understand their religions to help agnostics maybe have some honor for fellow citizens in their faith. I visited with him about two weeks ago. He came into town, and he, was, he gave me his whole curriculum. It's about 50 pages long. His summation of all his research was this. A house of worship reflects the God worshiped there. In all of his visits to all these different houses, he said you could tell what God was worshiped there by what the house looked like. Because the God is reflected in his house. Much like our personal homes reflect our personality, our personal tastes, our values, a God's house automatically reflects his personality, his tastes, and his values. It is, after all, his house. And most of us could enter a pagan house of worship and very quickly assess that's not the Christian God. We could assess that by what's on the walls. We could recognize by the presence of idols or altars or incense or even by how the holy man is dressed. Either that's Christian or not Christian. That must be a Buddhist monk. That must be an imam. That must be a Sikh. That's a Catholic priest. That, that looks like Greek Orthodox. That must be a rabbi. You could tell it's on display because those folks in that house aren't ashamed of their God. The holy men aren't ashamed to be holy men. What does it say about the Western Christianity when its churches are no longer distinguishable from nightclubs, theaters, or coffee bars? Who or what is really important there? Who is really being worshipped there? Has the American culture finally succeeded in co-opting the church and the gospel? The American culture making us its own. Our flippancy with the house of God is now so common and so normal, we may be tempted to see any attitude adjustment as legalistic. And though the modern preacher has taken it upon himself to follow the winds of culture, chasing trends, fads, and market research, allowing his worship to be dictated by Instagram, the Bible maintains a pattern that has never bent to secular, modern whims of insecure clergy. In Genesis 12, 7, we see Abraham finally entering Canaan, and the Lord appears to him at an oak tree at Morah. And there God reminded Abraham of the promise to give that land to all of his descendants. And Abraham so honored that God would show up. Up until this point, God had only spoken to him, according to Genesis. Here, he finally appears to him. And Abraham built an altar unto the Lord there. He marked the location of that theophany with a monument. And it wasn't just a monument, it's an altar. 
because an altar commands a sacrifice. Now, here's one of the problems in how we're dishonoring the house of God. We're no longer expecting sacrifice of God's people. We have believed this lie that if we lower the standard, more people will want God. But the problem is the value of God hasn't changed, even though we try to short sell it. God still demands a sacrifice. You can't come to him without a sacrifice. How does Abram, a a, a pagan from Ur of the Chaldees, a Babylonian who's had one or two encounters with God, understand this and the modern secularist Christian not get it? God appears, his natural instinct is, I'm going to build an altar because when God shows up, he deserves a sacrifice. He builds a monument and a place of sacrifice because the Almighty is always worthy of a sacrifice. We are beginning to, I shouldn't say begin, we have dishonored the things of God by eliminating inconvenience and sacrifice. Our culture has made worshiping God all about ease. Our worship should always include sacrifice. We should get up off our feet or kneel and worship or come to the altar. It should always cost something. It's the sacrifice of our lips. Our tithe and our offering is a sacrifice that the Bible calls worship. Tithing, the Bible calls worship. It costs us something. Serving God should cost you time. We're about to see where the Bible says going to the house of God should cost you travel. Everything the American church has done has diminished honor for God. And when you diminish honor for God, God stops showing up. The candlestick is taken and it's a dead assembly going through religious motions. Abraham would go on to build four more altars, one at Bethel, one at Mamre, one at Mount Moriah, where he's tried to sacrifice Isaac. Each represented a significant season of his life and walk with God. Altars are where a sacrifice is made because worshiping and serving the real God demands a sacrifice. Amen. If you've never sacrificed for God, you've never served him yet. I don't have permission as a preacher from this Bible to lower the standard to make it easy for you. Brother Hagen used to say it. Dr. Barclay quotes him all the time now. The things of God still cost what they've always cost. They still cost sacrifice, time, sweat, pain, fear, prayer, fasting, money, holiness, walking away from friends and family and careers. And if you're not willing to make those sacrifices, hell will wait for you. Because you can't serve God without sacrificing pride, arrogance, excuses. How can you have a God without an altar? Jacob was the first person, that's Abraham's grandson. He's the first person to use the term house of God. He coined it. In Genesis 28, 16 through 19, Jacob in his wanderings and his fleeings from his brother Esau happens upon a place called Luz. And there he goes to bed and has the famous dream of the ladder going from earth to heaven and angels ascending and descending. And he calls the name of that place Beth-El, Bethel. Beth being the Hebrew for house and El for Elohim, God, the house of God. And in that dream, God gave Jacob a sevenfold promise, which still applies to us. I will give you and your seed this land. Your seed will be as the dust of the earth. 
and you shall all the nations of the world be blessed. I am with you. I will keep you. I will bring you again. I will not leave you until I've done that which I've spoken to thee. That's the sevenfold promise God gave to Jacob in that dream. And he wakes up and says, this is the house of God, and I didn't even know it. Which to me is what every Christian needs to recognize in their own weak heart. You're in the house of God, and you totally forgot it. Jacob awoke in fear, saying, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not even know it. How reverential and awesome is this place. This is none other but the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. A backslidden preacher's kid whose name meant trickster, supplanter, has an epiphany most churches have washed out of their midst. Would to God modern Christians might awake to this sentiment and recognize where they are when they come to church. They're in God's house a place that must be revered and hallowed in their heart, not common and carnal. This is heaven's gate. It is not dinner and a movie. This is heaven's gate. Jacob immediately arose, wasting no time, and he converted the stone that he had used as a pillar that night, or a pillow, and he converted it to an altar. He picked up the stones, the book of Genesis says, that had been his pillow, and he stacked and made an altar, which symbolizes he instantly converted comfort to sacrifice. He built an altar out of what had been his bed. And then to consecrate it, he took the only thing of value he had on him, which was olive oil, and he poured it out, all of it, and he poured oil on this altar because God's worship requires sacrifice. I mean, just, just stop and think about the typical church experience today. Is there any sacrifice really required? Any inconvenience? I mean, the preachers are tripping over themselves to make church palatable to people who hate us. Why would you mock and ridicule your God, deceiving yourself, thinking you're actually going to change somebody? Run your God off that you might entice those who don't really care anyway. When a seeker really seeks God, he'll say, my God, what must I do to be saved? And you could say, stand on your head and juggle these chainsaws. And they'll say, show me the chainsaws. Man, we are trying to sweeten this deal like some used car salesman. It's disgusting to watch preachers of the gospel try to close the deal like some kind of desperate hack. Shame on them for being compromised finding their value in the numbers of people in their seats. We ought to start measuring our success in how many folks did I run off last service? Five? That's it? Man, I ran off 22. Woo! I need those notes. We don't have a permission to lower the standard. We ought to keep raising it and raising it and raising it. <laughs> to consecrate the altar, he anointed it with oil, pouring it out because the Almighty is always worthy of a sacrifice. He changed the name of that place to distinguish it, to make it sacred, so there would never be any confusion as to what that place was meant to be. That is the house of God. Nobody confused it with a coffee bar. Nobody confused it with a skate park. Nobody thought maybe it's a place to play laser tag. What, what, what Bethel? When they heard it, that was the town called House of God. What happens there? God shows up there. We went through a season in our circles where we were ashamed to be called a church. 
So we had Outreach, Fellowship International, blah, blah, blah. Now we have churches like The Hip. We, we have divorced ourselves from anything that says what we really are. But I thought we were catering to seekers. How will the seekers find us if they don't even know what we are? We ought to call it the church of repent or you're going to hell. What do you guys teach there? It's in the name. Repent or you're going to hell. <laughs> Later, God reminded Jacob of that event and said, I am the God of Bethel. He acknowledged you changed the name. Where you anointed the pillar. He acknowledged the sacrifice and the conversion of chasing comfort and convenience to a place of laying down your life and sacrificing for God. And he said, and there you made that solemn vow to me. God remembered all of it because not only did God appear to Jacob, Jacob acknowledged God's appearance and responded with honor, sanctification, making the area hallowed. God took note. How many times does God visit a church? Nobody notices and God says, well, there's no point in me going back. These events give us a pattern for what the house of God should be like even today. Number one, the house of God is a place where God is present. Most crucial. It has been said that God has attended every church, has visited every church, and still attends some. And I would tell you, those that go to dead churches don't realize they're dead. Because if they knew they were dead, they would leave. When you live in a place of decay, you become accustomed to the stench of decay and you don't know there's something better out there. Number two, the house of God is a place that is hallowed by man. It doesn't matter what God calls it. If man doesn't call it that, it has no effect. The house of God is a place that is hallowed by man. That is, it's regarded as holy and sacred by people. If you've ever been to Arlington Cemetery, there's a hallowed hush on that place. Not because Jesus Christ is worshiped there, but because the hearts of generations have been taught to venerate that place as sacred. And the hearts and the, the aroma of, of America's heart sees that as sacred holy ground for our war dead. It's palpable. It's not the Holy Spirit, but it's palpable because man's heart has hallowed it. And there's absolutely zero tolerance for any dishonor in that place. And when anybody watches it, the hallowed hush on those grounds, you like you walk into it and you can't help but be quiet. But that's been taught generation after generation after generation. We're doing it for dead people. Now, not to dishonor them, thank God for the unknown soldier who gave his life. But if we can do it, if pagan soldiers can be taught to do it for dead corpses... And the church can't even do it for the living God. We'd rather have a cappuccino and a concert and wonder where revival is. We may have forfeited the only opportunity. And that ship may have sailed. God may have left and we never even recognized it. But we got a little cute coffee bar named after Jehovah Java. Teehee, isn't God so pleased? The house of God is a place of sacrifice, not convenience or comfort. It's a place where sacrifice is promoted and expected. Don't think you've done me a service by coming to church. Don't think you've done God a service by showing up. Because some of you are still deadbeats. You contribute nothing here. 
You come early, you leave late, you don't tithe, you don't serve. I don't know if the early church would let you attend. I definitely don't think the underground church of China would tell you where the next meeting was going to be. Because you're not serious. This is your religious stamp to deceive yourself into thinking you're right with God. And you're not. Let me be clear. You're not right with God. You're deceived into a cultural religion. Church is a place, the house of God is a place where commitment to God is promoted and expected. It is a place known for holiness, sacrifice, and the presence of God. It is not known for entertainment or casualty, casualness. Those are reserved for other areas of life, and there's nothing wrong with entertainment or being casual watching a football game, but not the holy house of God. God showed up to Jacob, and Jacob had to make that area different. He quickly stacked those rocks up, what is called a cane in English, a pile of rocks, and then he gave an offering. He didn't sacrifice an animal. The quickest thing he could do was pour out oil. It's all his heart knew to do. And man, Christians today think the pastor ought to give him a high five for showing up. If church is just like every other area of life, then there is no distinction. And God has become common. The second house of God, the Bible records, is called the tabernacle. So let's see if this pattern continues over into the tabernacle. When Moses encountered God at the burning bush, he's shepherding. He's 80 years old. He's got on sandals. He's chasing sheep. His shoes were probably covered with excrement and dirt and detritus. God called Moses to himself. When Moses answered and said, here am I, God's next words were, stop. You just said, come here. I say, here am I, and you say, wait. God said, do not draw here. Don't draw any closer. Put off your shoes from your feet, for this is holy ground that you're standing on. And you didn't even notice. Was God confused? He calls, come here. And then when Moses' answer says, don't draw near, take your shoes off. No, Moses had to be shown he was on holy ground. Just like believers today have to be taught what is holy and what is common. Let me make a personal preference to you parents. This is the house of God. Wednesdays are a bit more casual. Please stop with the jeans that are cut to pieces. Can I raise your standard? I, I don't have a problem with jeans like that, but let's not treat this like high school. Can we do that? That's not a, that's, that's not a far cry. Let's have a little bit more respect. I, I get Wednesdays our kids are coming in. We're coming from work. It's a little bit more casual, but can we draw the line somewhere? And how about ratty jeans being that? I mean, it's up to you if you want to spend brand new money on brand new ratty jeans. And I get it. It's fashion. It comes and it goes. But if we want to make this more than just common, let's distinguish something. Let's make something different. Let's, let's treat it different than every other area of our life. And I believe if we'll honor God a little more, he'll show up a little more. 
And there's, you have to understand there's a big distinction between a revival falling on a mountain somewhere and an abiding. He is meant to always abide in his house. He'll show up on the street for a revival. He'll show up on a bush field for an evangelistic crusade once. We need his abiding. We need him to be hallowed in his house. All right. Moses had to be taught this is holy ground. God said, don't draw near, take your shoes off. That area of rocky, dusty, dirty soil was only holy because God was there. And Moses had to be taught what it was and how to sanctify it in his personal life. How does a shepherd having an impromptu meeting with God show deference to a burning bush? How is he to treat it different than any other place he's walked in his life? He takes his shoes off and he hides his face before God. Much like if the presence of God fell upon us unexpectedly, all we could do was maybe bend our knees or just lift our hands. Even in our own, when God shows up, we do something different. You don't do this to the lady at the Walmart checkout. You don't do that to the Starbucks barista. You don't take a knee. Something in us, the Spirit of God, compels us as believers. When God's presence unexpectedly comes upon us, we, we, bend a, we bow ahead. We clasp hands. We do something to make that moment in that area and that experience sacred. And the modern church just keeps lowering the standard like public school to get more kids to pass. Moses had to learn how to honor the presence of God around a thorny shrub because he would soon have to dwell on that same mountain under a manifestation of God's glory that didn't simply ignite a mountain, a bush. It incinerated the whole mountain. And if he couldn't take his shoes off at a burning shrub, he would never make it on the furnace. And we're just dealing with little things today, but what does God want to do with us a year from now? It was in that presence that God taught Moses how to build the tabernacle, how to order worship, how the requirements of the ministers were to be laid out, the expectations of the worshipers, and the consequences when Yahweh's commandments were not followed. And lest we think, think well, we're under the dispensation of grace, God doesn't kill anybody, remember that a husband and wife dropped dead in a New Testament offering service because they violated the law of Moses. But we're under grace. Moses got his tabernacles designed from God, not by visiting the neighboring Bedouin theater or coffee shop. He got his design from God, though it was a tent like every other nation had. It was different. He didn't pattern it after the other Bedouins, not the Amalekites, the Hittites, the Gittites, none of those, not the Amalekites or the Ishmaelites. He got it from God. It was going to be a different house altogether. The tabernacle was established to foretell Christ and to teach honor for God. The tabernacle's curtain walls presented a buffer from the barren wilderness and the pagans that surrounded it. It was pristine, holy, sanctified, beautiful, and different from all other tents the surrounding nomadic peoples may have been traveling with. This was the temple of the God of the Hebrews. With the pillar of fire coming from its central tent and a cloud covering by day, it was not common and there was no confusion as to what it was and what took place there. There was no confusion as to what that place was and what happens there. That cannot be said for churches today. Within the outer court 
was the tent of meeting that provided another step up closer into the presence of God. Within that tent complex was the holy place, then the holy of holies. And as you walked into that tabernacle, you kept getting closer and closer and closer to the God of all creation. It was designed to bring you into God's presence. The tabernacle was no place to play games or be entertained. If you come here for entertainment, go and don't come back. Go find your entertainment church, get your latte, jam out, have your seat in your darkened theater and watch your life suffer. Even the priests were subject to dropping dead if they failed to honor God as commanded. The priests, who we will cover next week when we talk about restoring honor to the men of God, were among things tasked with teaching God's people the difference between the holy and the unholy, as we've just seen. Turn with me, if you would, to Ezekiel 44. I'll read another verse here. If God's going to have a revival, he has to be respected. We're begging God to show up and save our nation, but our prominent churches have no honor for God. Why would God show up? It's like begging somebody to come to your house for dinner, but they know you're just going to make fun of them when you get there. Ezekiel 44. confirms the Levitical law, but in a heavenly vision of the heavenly temple. Verse 23, and they, the preachers, shall teach my people the difference between the holy and profane and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. And in controversy, they shall stand in judgment and they shall judge it according to my judgments and they shall keep my laws and my statutes in all my assemblies, in all my assemblies, and they shall hallow my Sabbaths. The Sabbath is hallowed. It's sacred. But that doesn't mean mankind views it as such. One of our lessons, we will talk about keeping the Lord's Day holy, whether that's a Saturday, a Sunday, or a Tuesday afternoon. But one day a week has to be hallowed. Because if not, all days are common. And if all days are common, then we're not worshiping God. Moses' tabernacle was like the burning bush and Jacob's altar. It was holy. It was set apart. It was uncommon, a place to make sacrifices and bring offerings because that is part of how you serve a God. You sacrifice and you make offerings. Tightwads and selfish, excuse-filled, stay-at-home mom types can hardly call themselves worshipers. A, the, the, a tabernacle of Moses was a place to be venerated, whose veneration had to be taught to newcomers appointed by the priest. Those Excuse me, there was zero permission to lower the standard for the ignorant latecomer or to draw more seekers. The priest didn't say, well, that's a little too rough. Let's just lower it. If you were truly seeking the God of the Hebrews, they brought you up to speed. They didn't slow down to help you catch up. The priest taught the people the standard written on tables of stone. You, if you wanted to serve God, you caught up because we're not coming down. The seeker movement taught by the agnostic, atheistic Jew, Peter Drucker, the Austrian who hated God, taught to the likes of our seeker member, seeker friendly gurus, was that tone the church down and give the non church member what they want. Why would so called pastors seek counsel from an atheistic businessman? 
because they were greedy, full of avarice, and deceived. And those men who listened to Peter Drucker gave birth to the seeker-friendly movement. That movement still poisoned several churches in Cookville. Books written by those men are still passed around Cookville. Those churches are not held in standard. They're not held in repute for having high-caliber disciples. If they were to attend our church, I'd have to detox them and retrain them in line with the Bible. God and his tabernacle were there long before the seeker showed up, showing any desire of interest. And if that seeker is truly being drawn by the Holy Spirit and not just being sent by a demon to bring havoc to a congregation, then God already knows what the standard is and he expects the local priest to bring that new convert up to speed. You come up, we don't come down. Through instruction, the ignorant God-seeker was taught the statutes of God. God determines how we are to approach him. Only an arrogant man thinks he can negotiate a contract with the eternal God. We've all heard this stupid sound of idiocracy. Me and God have an understanding. Yes, he understands you're a godless, stubborn, self-honoring ignoramus who needs to submit to a discipler and a church. That's his understanding of you. Now, what's yours of him? Exodus 33, 7. Turn there. We'll read this verse. We must rekindle honor for the house of God. Exodus 33, 7. Now, Moses, this is, I think, the New Living Translation, so I'll give it to you out of a more modern translation. Now, modern, uh, now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. The worship of God has never been about conveniences. Moses' tent was purposely put away from everybody, and if you sought God, you literally went and sought him. But you knew where to find him. But you had to leave the comfort of your own tent. Well, God is everywhere. Yes, but none so powerful as in his tent. God has never been about convenience, but fast food, Amazon, and streaming services are, and they define our culture can't download God on your own on a whim. You have to grow into a relationship with him. Solomon's temple, the next house of God, took seven years and over two billion man hours to build. It served to solidify in stone, cedar, and gold the standard and expectation of God for his most magnificent house. But his father, David, got the blueprint of the temple from God. He did not visit the surrounding pagan nations or their temples to pattern it. It was the tabernacle, but in stone. They didn't borrow from the world. When God was honored in that temple, his glory fell and nobody could stand up under the presence. Isaiah 2. Let's look at this. Isaiah 2. 
We must redeem honor for the house of God. And I'm considered legalistic. I am, uh, I am rare among many in this region because I still preach in a suit and tie. We'll, we'll deal with dress in the coming weeks. I am not a suit and tie guy. I still have hippie running through my veins. I prefer North Face. I prefer outdoor clothing. I wear Birkenstocks. I wear flip-flops. I wear sandals. I wear backpacking shoes. Even though I appear all fancy and smart here, even my professional career had me in construction, even at the zinc mine. That's basically underground construction. I wear a suit because it's the best our culture has to show honor. And why would I not give my God the best my culture has to give? Why would I give a prom night more honor than my God? Why would I give the daddy-daughter date night more honor than my God? Why would I give a funeral more honor than my God? Why would I give a meeting with a politician more honor than my God? Why would I give my wedding day more honor than my God? Except that my God, who I claim to worship, is a little g-God. And I'm too inconvenienced to put on a necktie or a suit top. It's just too much work. But remember, God deserves a sacrifice. I don't think most of the American church would last half a week in the underground church. I don't think Paul would even stay in America to preach. He'd come in, look around, dust his feet off and say, let's go somewhere else. This is a lost cause. Sure looks that way. But if we're preaching this way, there's a little bit of hope for God to rekindle some respect and honor for the things of God. Isaiah 2.2, 2, and it shall come to pass in the last days, that's where we happen to live, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established. Hebrew says prepared. The mountain of the Lord's house shall be prepared in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above everything else, above the hills, and all nations shall flow into it. We want to win the loss. We want revival. How about we exalt the mountain of the Lord's house? It has to be prepared. And once it's prepared, it'll be exalted. Honor is about giving your God the best you have, whether that's the best sandals you got, the best nickel offering you got, the best singing you got when even your singing makes the dogs howl. You give God your very best. <laughs> but maybe if enough people complain, you say, Lord, you got to help me. Even the dogs don't like it. <laughs> Psalm 69, we'll just quote it for time's sake. It says, Psalm 69, 9, the zeal of thine house has eaten me up. If you'll remember, Jesus Christ cleansed the temple twice. Why? Because it was full of dishonor. His temple, at that point, it was Zerubbabel's temple that had been expanded by uh, King Herod uh, I. So it's called the Herodian temple. It was still practicing the Jewish law and Jewish worship and the, the rites and the rituals. Jesus visited it, but this first time he visited in his earthly ministry, he cleansed it. And then he cleansed it again the day he came into Israel, Jerusalem on his triumphant entry. They're all excited. Here comes the Messiah. And what's he do? Go to church and cleanse house. But it only took three years for them to forget what he did on his first visit. How quickly do God's people lose honor? You forget the young rabbi just purged the house and three years ago and then upbraided and you guys are still recovering with scars on your back and you brought it back in in less than three years. The zeal of thine house. I believe it was a warning. Clean it, keep it clean. 
He comes back right before his crucifixion, cleanses it again. It didn't stay clean. 30 years later, it was destroyed off the face of the earth. In 70 AD, it wasn't just cleansed. It was obliterated. No honor there for God. No honor for God, and God destroyed it. Just like he told the Ephesians in Revelation 2. Unless you repent, I'm taking your lamp away. Unless there be honor, unless you return to your first love, your first respect, I'm done. The persecuted early church and even the underground church today may not have had churches like we do, but archaeology reveals that catacombs and caves were heavily venerated, decorated, and protected. They were sacred, and I don't believe they were modeled after local Greek theaters. I have trouble believing that the underground, of church, the underground church of China has laser lights and a coffee bar. I, just, I don't think that church, the underground church there in Kuwait or the one in Iran, I just don't feel like the, the worship leader jumps around in a, in a skinny jean in a turban. I guarantee you they have the honor of God and the presence of the Lord. So let's talk about ways the modern church has diminished honor for God's house because we're all familiar with all of these. We began by embracing secular terms because Bible lingua was just too religious. The words we use reveal a lot about who's influencing us. When churches embrace secular terms, they reveal what spirit they're really yielding to. So how do we dishonor the house of God? Well, you just neglect it altogether. That's common. How about coming late? Because you don't do that for your airplane. You don't do that for your job. If you do it to your professor, he locks you out. You do it three times, he flunks you. You don't do it for the job interview. You don't do it for your wedding. You don't do it for the important things, the important things, the important things. But when, though, that's just church, you'll come late and leave early. In terms of secular terms, instead of a pulpit, which is a biblical term, this is now a podium or a lectern. That's what they call it. Instead of the altar, we call this the altar. Uh, Catholics call it the chancel. That's a kind of a traditional term, the chancel. The Jews call it the bema, which means judgment seat. I like that a lot. It's now the stage. You know, because that's where you have performing arts. Churches, when they were designed for about the last 1,500 years, used to have a narthex. It's what it's architecturally called. That was the gathering place. And then you had the sanctuary where everybody sat. And then you had the altar, purposely designed after the outer court, the inner court, and the Holy of Holies. And you entered in from the back, and you drew closer to the presence of God. And even though modern churches have different architectural layouts, I can tell you as a Holy Ghost preacher, the anointing is always stronger right here, not because of me. And then it diminishes as you go out. There's a reason cars don't have accidents out there. It's not out there. But you can walk in the sanctuary and feel it. And the closer you get, the stronger it becomes. Now, instead of narthex or gathering place and sanctuary and altar. Now what we have is a stage with stadium seatings and cup holders. 
Secular terms produce secular hearts. And that's what the church is full of today. Secular hearts who some of them genuinely want God, but the coward clergy hipster who's insecure is keeping them from God. And that won't be tolerated much longer until the Lord starts smiting shepherds. When they shepherd themselves on their sheep, when they feed themselves rather than their flock, when it's the them show and not the God show, forgive the term God, a show, they won't be around much longer. And may their congregation abandon them. Instead of worship or praise teams, we have the band and the band leader. Instead of pastor, preacher, minister, reverend, or even brother, it's Chuck, the speaker. We'll deal with that when we talk about honor for the man of God. That demon crept into the church. Everybody fell in love with it, but you don't realize you just taught your elders to make you their equal. And I'm not equal to our elders. I appointed them. I'm over them. I'm not equal to our deacons. I appointed them. Just like, I'm not equal to coach. Coach picked me. He'll always be coach. He'll be 95. He'll still be coach. He'll be in a walker, in a nursing home. He'll be coach. And I'll still venerate and honor that man because he's coach. No, instead of reverend or pastor or minister or parson, even Frosty had Parson Brown, you know? Huh. It's Chuck. Well, call no man father, not even your dad. People are so ignorant with their doctrine. We got Chuck, the speaker. Instead of a sermon, it's a speech or a talk, like TED Talks. Instead of a sanctuary, it's an auditorium. Instead of the house of God, it's a campus or a multi-site campus. And I hate that terminology with every fiber of my being. It's a secular insecure ego trip. You know why it's multi-site campus? So you don't have to be inconvenienced. We don't want you to have to drive more than 20 minutes. So let's just satellite the thing in. How about if God's really called you there, you move. God forbid this thing cost you a sacrifice. Instead of waiting upon the Lord, it's a 60 or 90 minute guarantee. We promise you, you'll be in and out in 60 minutes. Or what? My tithe is free? No, because you don't take up the tithe. You click to give. We'll address that when we start talking about honoring the offerings of God. Instead of discipleship, it's entertainment. No longer are we to be the saints of God assembling in the house of God in the beauty of holiness to praise and worship our creator through offerings and music to be instructed in the word of righteousness by a preacher of righteousness, one who's been given the rule over us, who also happens to watch over our soul and hasn't forgotten he must give an account to God for the state of his flock. Nope, this is no longer the American church. Thanks to the convergence of America's obsession with entertainment and marketing and the ever-consuming desire to obtain more market share, this then is the summation of the modern American church's self-identification. Here's how the Americans see themselves now. 
we boast ourselves a multi-site campus where seekers can grab a latte, gather in the stadium seating equipped auditorium to experience a cutting edge concert with late light show produced as a live music video, followed by an informative but encouraging talk delivered by the executive motivational speaker called Terry. Projected onto the jumbotron of one of the eight local campuses, all in less than 90 minutes, once a week. Or just stay at home and stream the experience. And please don't forget to click to give. How much of God shows up for that? And we didn't get there overnight. We got there one little straw pulled at a time, one little degree off at a time, because it's causing more people to come. Until you look down one day and there's just no, nothing, nothing preventing profanity from running into the house of holiness to where now you walk into the house of God and there's no distinction. There's no distinction among the ministers, among the people, among the worship team. In fact, most of the worship team had a Saturday night gig anyway. They're all sleeping with each other, smoking dope anyway. We didn't get here overnight. We got here so slowly, even some of this offends some of you. Because you've been so subtly wooed into the, the rhythms of it. What's, but what's wrong with coffee? Nothing. I love coffee, but we're not putting one in church. Amen. What's wrong with entertainment? Nothing, but we're not doing it in church. Amen. What's wrong with lasers and smoke? Nothing, but we're not doing it in church. Amen. I'm so thankful that when the seeker church exploded with the Instagram perversion, God kept me overseas in the bush of Africa to keep me mindful it doesn't take any of that to bring in my presence. It just needs worship and honor. And I've been in holy houses of God in the back of nowhere, Kenya, hot tin roof, little altar made out of stack packed dirt and the people on their knees worshiping God and the dirt becomes mud as they cry and the power of God come down stronger than anything I've ever experienced in this nation. In a church that would cost us a hundred bucks to build today. But the people of God feared their God, reverenced their God, and God showed up. No lasers or skinny jeans needed. A jumbotron can't watch over your soul. And the preacher on the jumbotron doesn't even know your name. And if he doesn't know your name, you don't have a pastor. And if you don't have a pastor, then you are already astray. What kind of disciple could this attitude and formula possibly produce? If God is not honored, he will not be in attendance. And if he does not attend, who will be helped? Last, last verse, last two verses. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 5. For our gospel came not unto you in word only. It's not a TED talk, baby. But also in power and in the Holy Ghost. We need him to show up if we're going to do any kind of church. And in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Should be no question who the holy man is. Too many of my fellow preachers, they are so consumed with fashion. You would never recognize them as a man of God outside of church. You would just assume they were trendy. The gospel is not just cheap talk. There must be power and Holy Ghost. 
and the Holy Ghost doesn't anoint a dope-smoking, fornicating worship team, and the Holy Ghost doesn't anoint a compromised, insecure clergy who's modeled everything after Vegas. I was telling somebody, it's almost like a lot of our church services have become Siegfried and Freud minus the gays and the tigers. It's just a Vegas sideshow. And we use God's people to make ourselves rich and famous. What do we do? Because here I have to bring some kind of resolution because it would be hopeless if I didn't. This lame excuse, quoting Isaiah, that God is doing a new thing. This is not God's way of saying, be secular and dishonor me. Because <laughs> I've heard that, brother, God's doing a new thing. Okay, but that doesn't mean go to the world. Don't go to Egypt. Don't go to Egypt. Don't go to Egypt. Don't go to Egypt. God's new thing would be more of him that you never knew existed because you never bothered to seek him. What do we do? Jeremiah 6.16. Just write it down. I'll read it to you. Jeremiah 6.16. Thus says the Lord, stand ye in the ways, that means the roads, and see and ask for the ancient path. Look at all the roads. Look at the crossroads and say, which one of these is the ancient path? Thus says the Lord. That's the commandment. That doesn't mean I'm wearing a robe, a collar, or a weird hat. Okay? <laughs> We're not going that far. I don't really want to change anything except our attitude. I really would just like some of you to show up on time. My friend Chris Parker, he's in England now. He's a missionary to Iceland. We were talking about this. We FaceTimed this week. He said, what are you preaching on? I said, honor. He said, that's been rolling in my heart. Will you send me your notes? He said, let me tell you, brother, in my nation, the saints are horrible for showing up late. And he said, and our culture is we fellowship before we sit down for service. He said, so I just had a brother. He showed in late again and began to talk and visit with everybody as I'm ministering. He said, so I just put down the microphone. and said, let me know when you're done and I'll continue with God. You done? Does anybody else feel like they want to get up and walk around and talk and disrespect God in his own house? Anybody? Am I free to carry on with what God gave me to do? You think I'm tough. Of course, he did it with that suave British accent. He said in one of the other churches in Iceland, he was preaching and two of the men were looking at something on their phone. He said, I personally hate Bibles on phones. He said, there's something dishonorable about them. This is a British man speaking. He said, but I'll tolerate it. So I assume they were looking at the Bible together because I'm preaching and that's what they should be doing. And he said, but they began to giggle, these two grown men. And he said, there's not too many funnies in the Bible. And it wasn't where we were at anyway, so they couldn't have been laughing at the Bible. So I stopped and I said, are you done? Gentlemen, if you want to, you can go into the foyer. We have a coffee room because that's part of the Icelandic culture. You can go fellowship out there, but not while I'm preaching. And the one man got offended and said, my dad built this church. And Pastor Parker said, I don't care. He's not here. So you guys can leave or you can repent. But you're not going to dishonor God in his house. So the man stormed up, left, and never came back, he said. And he said, I told the rest of the church, well, I'm not continuing with my sermon. He said, I closed my Bible. He said, we have offended and disgusted God in his own house. We're all getting on our knees and repenting to our God. And he said, and we prayed for the next hour that God would forgive us for disrespecting him in his house. That was just like a year or two ago. Not 1860. 
But I'm telling you, the modern church disgusts me. The gimmicks disgust me. There's no God to be found. There's no saving power. So the prophet tells the people who are about to become slaves because they hate God but claim they love him, what do we do? Go stand out in the crossroads. Look at all the options and ask, which one's the ancient path? Where is the good way? And that's where you walk. And you shall find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk therein. That's the verse. God said, here's the answer. Go do it the old way, the way that works. It's the good way. And you'll find rest for your wretched soul. And the people said, no, I like my coffee and my lasers. I like my trendy. I like my 60-minute guarantee. I want to be a secular believer if there is such a thing. So what do we do, church? We must judge ourselves and our attitudes, recognizing dishonor doesn't happen overnight. It creeps in through laziness, lack of study, lack of prayer, insecurity, and secular influence. We must seek to honor God that we might perhaps receive his honor again. Amen.